Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, we love you. We adore you. Father, we thank you for, for being a God who has a heart for us. Father, we thank you for being a God who welcomes us back even when we stray off your path, even when we stray way off your path. And Father, help us to be people who, who turn our hearts back to you. And also, Father, help us to be people who have your heart. Help us to be people who delight in people who turn off of the path that is leading them to destruction and back to you. Help us to be people who are, are actively searching out people who are on the wrong path to, to lead them to your heart. And Father, help us to, to celebrate and delight when people turn back to you. And Father, we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, as usual, at the very beginning, what I want to do is I just want to take a moment to highlight our Project 6K progress. As most of you know, this year, the body of Christ here at Netherwood Park is focusing on being equipped to serve in God's kingdom. And because we recognize that God's word, that scripture is essential and it's central to any equipping effort that we might undertake, we have challenged ourselves to collectively, as a body of Christ, to read 6,000 books of the Bible in 2016. And as you can see on the screen, I'm very pleased to report that so far this year we've read 2,129 books of the Bible. We've passed the 2K mark. This is excellent because we're still in March and we're well over a third of the way to our goal. So good job. Keep it up. Keep immersed in the word of God. Also, as we are talking about being equipped to serve, we've been moving through a series of sermons, a series that is examining and confronting common reasons why many of us feel that we are unqualified to serve in God's kingdom. And not only are these the reasons we offer for why we aren't qualified to serve in God's kingdom, these are also the common reasons we offer as to why other people, why our brothers and sisters should be disqualified to serve in God's kingdom. And today is the final sermon in that series. And in this final sermon, we're going to confront what is probably the strongest objection to service of them all. We're going to address the difficult topic of service in God's kingdom after someone has engaged in active, willful, and egregious sin. We're going to ask and answer some questions. Questions like, can someone serve in God's kingdom even after they have actively gone out of their way to sin? Questions like, can someone serve in God's kingdom even after they have willfully and knowingly disobeyed God's laws, the laws that they have promised to follow? Questions like, can someone serve in God's kingdom even after they have egregiously sinned, glaringly sinned, flagrantly sinned, shockingly sinned? Sinned in a way that brought great shame to them. Sinned in a way that brought great harm to others. And sin that has brought disgrace to the name of God and the body of Christ. And we're going to see that the answers to those questions may be just as shocking as the sin of King David. The sin of King David with Bathsheba. King David, who's the great king 
who's described as a man after God's own heart. So please listen carefully this morning because there are very important lessons for all of us in today's message. There are important messages for you if you believe that you're active, you're willful, you're egregious disobedience, you're willful, active, and and egregious sin. If you believe that that disqualifies you from service in God's kingdom now, please listen carefully. There are also very important lessons for you and for me if we believe that other people's active willful and egregious disobedience. If we believe that their active, willful, and egregious sin in the past disqualifies them from service in God's kingdom now, please listen up because there are very important lessons for you today. I also want you to know that I'm going to be preaching from one of my least favorite stories in the Bible today. I like preaching from my favorite stories, not my least favorite stories, but this is one of my least favorite stories. You see, I wish these events had never happened. I'd like for my heroes to be better than this. I would like for David, the man who God used in such powerful ways, to be stronger than this. I'd like for that shepherd boy who answered the call to follow God's heart to be a king I'd like for him to be a king who never wavered in following God's call. But that's not the way it happened. Instead of a steadfast heart, David had a wandering heart. Instead of a perfect hero, David was a lot like me. David was a lot like you. So listen carefully to the painful story of what happened when David chose to follow his own heart instead of following the heart of his God. We find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. For time's sake, I won't be able to read all of the story, but I'll give you an abbreviated version of what happened. We learn that in the spring, David sent Joab out with the whole Israelite army, but David remained back in Jerusalem. And then one evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and he saw a very beautiful woman bathing And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her, and she went back home. And Bathsheba conceived, and she sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And story's bad, but it gets worse. You see, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is one of David's soldiers, and he's off fighting David's battles. And David determines that he's going to cover up his sins. He's going to cover up his sin with Bathsheba by bringing her husband back from the front lines. See, David assumes that Uriah will be kind of like him. He'll give in to his pleasures. He'll also sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. And then everybody, including Uriah, will be satisfied that Uriah is the father of this unborn child, not David. But Uriah doesn't cooperate with David's attempted cover-up. When Uriah comes back, he spends his first night home sleeping at the entrance to David's palace instead of sleeping with his wife. We pick up the story in verse 10. 
When David was told that Uriah didn't go home to sleep with his wife, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Well, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening... Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent that letter with Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So Uriah goes back to the front lines, not knowing that he's carrying his own death warrant. And Joab follows David's instructions in the letter. He puts Uriah in harm's way, and Uriah was killed in battle. And if all that wasn't shocking enough, listen to David's response on hearing the news of Uriah's death. A messenger comes with that news, and the And David tells the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. David's response is basically, Go back and tell Joab, Accidents happen. But David knows this is no accident. And Joab knows this is no accident. And David's God knows this is no accident. And even though then David brings Bathsheba into his house and makes Bathsheba his wife, we're told in verse 27 that the thing David had done was evil. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what happened when David followed his own heart. When David followed his own heart, a tragic failure happened. It's a tragic human failure It's a tragic failure of David's heart. That's what happened. Bathsheba happened. I think it's really important for us to understand that this epic failure was all David's fault. There's been an unfortunate tendency. I think there's been some misguided efforts to try and absolve David of at least some of the guilt in the events of this story. Some people seem to want to protect David's reputation by destroying Bathsheba's reputation. They want to make Bathsheba at least a co-conspirator in this story. But I'm here to tell you that's not the story here. That's not the truth here. And if you go down that path, that robs this story of its great power. It was all King David's fault. There are no alibis. There are no extenuating circumstances. We need to understand that David isn't innocent in any way. David isn't ignorant in any way. David wasn't seduced. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't taken advantage of in any way. 
There's no way for David to pass the buck on this one. You see, King David's sin was active. Listen to all these active words. He saw Bathsheba. He asked about Bathsheba. Even though he knew she was married, David sent for Bathsheba. David had sex with Bathsheba. And when David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he sent for Bathsheba's husband. He made Uriah drunk. And when Uriah didn't cooperate with David's cover-up, David ordered Uriah's death. There's no way to pass the buck. David's sin was active. And not only was David's sin active, it was willful. David can't plead ignorance. He can't say things like this. Oh, I didn't know it was wrong to take another man's life. Oh, I didn't know it was wrong to take another man's wife. No, David knew God's law. He knew God's law better than just about anybody knew God's law. David wrote and sang about the wisdom of God's law. David held himself up as someone who took great delight in God's law. There's no way to pass the buck. King David's sin was willful. Not only was it active and willful, King David's sin was egregious. It was glaring. It was flagrant. It was shocking. His sin was egregious, not just because of what he did, but also because of how he did it. See, David abused his power. He abused his authority. He abused his position to take what he wanted. He used his power to kill who he wanted. He used his power to involve other people in his sin. And he used his power to involve other people in his attempted cover-up of his sin. There's no way for David to pass the buck. His sin was active, and it was willful, and it was egregious. No wonder God was displeased because of what David had done. No wonder God viewed this as evil in his sight. To my way of thinking, this should be the end of the story. It seems like it should be the end of the story because David's story seems to have all the makings of a classic fall from grace story. We know how fall from grace stories go. Normally what happens in Act 1, there's a young man from humble beginnings who's plucked from obscurity. He rises to dizzying heights while never forgetting where he came from and never forgetting the people who helped him get there. But in Act 2, things begin to change. And all the corrupting influences of wealth and power and fame begin to take their toll on the no longer young man. He becomes an awful lot just like the corrupt leaders who came before him. He begins to forget where he came from. And he begins to forget those who made his rise possible. And then in Act 3, that man full of pride, that man full of arrogance, begins to enrich himself by bringing harm to the very people he used to be a part of. And then he brings shame on those who made his new position possible. And then his actions backfire and a dramatic fall from grace takes him right back to his humble beginnings. And in the classic fall from grace story, the epilogue tells us that the man is left as nothing more than just a tragic figure. He becomes just a cautionary tale for all who might be tempted to forget 
who they are and where they have come from. But David's story doesn't follow that script. David's story follows a different script because this really isn't David's story. This is really God's story. And because it's the story of the God of grace, and because it's the story of the God of redemption, and because it's the story of the God of restoration, in this story, God gives David a chance to rewrite the classic story. And rewriting the classic story gives David a path back to God's own heart. And that path back to God's heart begins with another servant. It begins with the prophet Nathan. We read about the prophet Nathan as we started this sermon. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read that Nathan confronted David's sin by telling a story to David. He told a story to David about a, about a shepherd, about the story to David who is a shepherd about a precious lamb. A precious lamb who was ruthlessly taken from a poor man to satisfy the desires of a very wealthy man. And after that story, you'll remember David's response to Nathan's story. In verse 5, David said, we learn that David burned with anger. He burned with anger against the rich man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan replied to David and said, You are that man. He said to David, You're the man without pity. He said to David, You're the man who deserves to die. He said to David, You're the man who must pay. And when Nathan does that, he starts David back on the path to God's heart. He does that by holding a mirror up to David. He holds a mirror up to David and he shows David who he really is. He shows David what he has really done. He shows David who he has really become. I don't know if any of you have heard about the new mirrors that are on the market that they're selling now. They're called skinny mirrors. Got some people's attention right away, right? Skinny mirrors. As you might guess, skinny mirrors are designed to make you look skinnier than you really are. They guarantee to take like five to ten pounds off of you. So if you just put one of those mirrors in your house and you look in it, you look very different than what you really are. They're manufactured to make you look five to ten pounds lighter than you really are. What they do is they present a distorted image of who you really are. You see, David was looking in a skinny mirror. David had a distorted image of who he really was. He had a distorted vision of what he had really done. It's a distorted view of who he had really become. And what Nathan did is Nathan held up a real mirror. He held up the mirror that revealed the truth, a mirror that showed that David had become someone who he didn't believe he really was, a mirror that showed David who he had really become and showed David what he had really done. He held up the mirror and he said, You are this man. You're not the man in your mirror. You're the man in this mirror. You're the man without pity. You're the man who deserves to die. 
And this is where David's story hangs in the balance. This is David's fork in the road. See, David can either choose to continue to look in that skinny mirror. He can continue to choose to believe the distorted view he has of himself. He can either choose to continue to follow his own heart, or he can choose to recognize that he is really the man in Nathan's mirror. He can choose to acknowledge who he has really become, and he can choose to acknowledge what he has really done. And by doing that, he can choose to start finding a path back to God's heart. And David chooses Nathan's mirror. David once more chooses God's heart. And he steps back on the path to God's heart by uttering six words that come straight from David's heart. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't offer any alibis. He doesn't offer any excuses. There's no passing the buck. He doesn't talk about any extenuating circumstances. He just says, I have sinned against the Lord. And David steps back on the path to God's heart by confessing his sins. He steps back on the path by accepting the blame that comes with his sin and by accepting the consequences of his actions. David knows that his family is going to suffer. And he knows that it's all his fault. David knows that his child is going to die, and he knows that it's all his fault. David knows that the consequences of his sin won't go away, and he knows that it's all his fault. So David responds like he should respond. King David mourns. King David grieves. King David is brought to his knees by the awful realization that his sins have caused and will continue to cause others to suffer and suffer greatly. David mourns in a way that's after God's own heart. It's the mourning of a heart that's been broken because of the pain that's been brought to others. But it's also mourning that shows that David is back on the path to God's heart. And because Nathan held up the mirror, and because David recognized his true image, and because David confessed his sin, and because David accepted his blame, and because David mourned the consequences of his sin... Because of that, God demonstrated to David and he demonstrates to us what his heart, what God's heart is all about. See, God takes David's sins away. God demonstrates his forgiving heart. God demonstrates his restoring heart. God takes sin away. He even takes away active, willful, and egregious sin away. And he restores David. He restores David to service in his kingdom, in God's kingdom, even though David's sin was all his fault. See, David was restored as a servant. Now, it's important for us to recognize that David was restored as a diminished servant. 
David brought shame to God, and he brought shame to God's people, and the consequences of that will continue. David has sown discord within his own family, and the consequences of that will continue. King David has sown distrust among his people, and the consequences of that will continue. But God has taken away his sin. But the consequences of David's sin will continue. He's restored, but he is diminished. Restored but diminished, but David is not disqualified as a servant in God's kingdom. God has requalified him as a servant in his kingdom. And God can continue to use David as a servant in his kingdom, and he does continue to use David in very powerful ways as a servant in his kingdom. In fact, if we think about it, God is still using David in powerful ways as a servant in his kingdom. He continues to use David through the psalms that he wrote. Even psalms like Psalm 32, the psalm that we read at the very beginning of our worship service today. A psalm that was written after David's active and willful and egregious sin but also written after God's restoration. Listen to what David said. He said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's a minister who's been forgiven. That's a servant who understands what God has done for him through his forgiving and and his forgiving heart. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that David is still teaching us that when we feel disqualified to serve because of our past transgressions, that God can cover our sins. As David tells us, God will not count them against us if our spirit is now without deceit. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you're disqualified from service because of your past sin, even if your past sin was active, even if your past sin was willful, even if your past sin was egregious, you need to understand that there is a way back to God's heart. And that way back to God's heart. That path back to God's heart begins by recognizing our sin. And it continues by confessing our sin and by accepting the blame of our sin and accepting the consequences of our sin. And it includes mourning our sin. But it doesn't end with mourning. It continues. It continues by accepting the forgiveness and restoration that comes straight from the heart of our God. So if you're here this morning and that describes you, I'd just like to say, won't you follow the path back to God's heart? Because he stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to restore. But for many of us here, we have a different problem. See, for many of us here, our problem isn't finding our way back to God's heart. 
Now, our biggest problem is helping others find their way back to God's heart. And sometimes, and I'll just speak for myself, sometimes I even have a big problem allowing others back to the path to God's heart. See, maybe you're like me, and you too have a really hard time accepting that other people who have sinned in active and willful and egregious ways should be accepted as servants in God's kingdom. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you sometimes have a hard time believing that others shouldn't be disqualified as servants because of their past sins. But I want to tell you that David's story teaches us that we should have the heart of God. See, we should have a heart of forgiveness. We should have a heart of restoration. So as we end, I want to ask you to consider these questions. Church, Netherwood Park, who among us is going to be willing to be a Nathan? Who among us is going to be willing to lovingly but boldly hold up the mirror to our brothers and sisters and their actions when they are sinning? When they're sinning willfully? When they're sinning egregiously? Also, I want to ask you this. Who among us Who among us, brothers and sisters here at Netherwood Park, who among us is going to be willing to give our brothers and sisters who have been sinning willingly and egregiously, who of us are going to be willing to give them access back to the path? Back to the path to God's heart. Who among us is going to follow God's heart by extending mercy, by extending grace, by extending forgiveness and restoration to our fellow active, willful, and egregious sinners. Because we're all active, willful, and egregious sinners. See, David's story is our story. So we have to ask all of ourselves this question, who among us is going to follow the heart of God? One of the great things about this Bible reading that we've been doing is that I'm reading through some books that I haven't read through in a a long time. Not too long ago, I was reading through Ezekiel. I was really struck by something that was repeated, words of God that were repeated in Ezekiel several times. It was a great reminder for me, and I hope it'll be a great reminder for you. If you have any doubts that the desire of God's heart is to restore sinners to service, I invite you to pause for a moment and listen to God's heart speak through Ezekiel. I'll be reading from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21. These are the words of God. He says, If a wicked man turns away from all these sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. He says, none of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. And because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. And God says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? He says, no. Rather, I am pleased when they turn from their ways and live. So let's be a body of Christ which takes great pleasure, 
takes great pleasure in hearts that turn back to God and are restored once more to service. If you're here today and you're ready to turn your heart back to God, won't you let us know? Won't you let your brothers and sisters know? Let us know so that we can pray with you. Let us know so we can walk with you on the path back to God's heart. You can let us know we're going to sing a song, an invitation song. We'll stand and we'll sing together. If you're ready to turn your heart back to God, won't you let us know? You can walk to the front and let us know. Maybe more comfortable for you, though, to make your way to the back. Go to the library. When one of our elders and his wife, they'll be there in the library waiting to talk to you. Waiting to talk to you about hearts that turn back to God. Waiting to pray with you. Waiting to walk with you on your path back to God's heart. Won't you let us know? Savior, like a shepherd,